Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. So, in our continued coverage of the Me Too movement and all of the wrinkles therein, we wanted to tell you that the head of CBS, Les Moonves, recently stepped down from CBS. Moonves is a huge media figure. He oversaw the CBS network, which included shows like The Big Bang Theory, 60 Minutes, and NCIS, the premium cable channel Showtime, and the publishing house Simon & Schuster. He was also a pretty big male vocal proponent of Me Too. And in December, he helped found the Commission on Eliminating Sexual Harassment and Advancing Equality in the Workplace, which is chaired by Anita Hill. But according to a new piece by who else, Ronan Farrow, six women who had professional dealings with Les Moonves between the 1980s and the late aughts say that he sexually harassed them. Four described forcible touching or kissing during business meetings in what they said appeared to be a practice routine. Two said that Moonves physically intimidated them or threatened to derail their careers. All said that he became cold or hostile after they rejected his advances and that they believed their careers suffered as a result. So add another name to that creep list. It's getting quite long. We could turn this show into just like creeps mom never told you about. Yes, creeps mom never told, like, yeah. <laughs> Which would not be very fun to listen to, but important nonetheless. It would be informative, you know, having a, having a, oh, a yeah. updating creep list. An updating creep list. Just hours after Ronan Farrow's piece was published, Moonbez was ousted from his role at CBS. He will stay on as an advisor, and CBS will pay him $120 million if its ongoing investigation fails to find any evidence of sexual misconduct, which just doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, so he's sort of a creep in residence right now. Yes, you know, right? <laughs> exactly. He's got to have an on-site creep mm, available mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah, just in case. Well, Annie, the Daily Mail actually points out that according to an SEC filing, CBS might actually be the one footing the bill. Quote, within 30 days following the termination date, the company will make contributions in the aggregate amount of $20 million to one or more charitable organizations that support the Me Too movement and equality for women in the workplace, the filing notes. So it does actually seem like they're suggesting it will be a joint donation from Moonves and CBS, but CBS might actually be the one that's picking up the bill, according to this filing. It's really upsetting and kind of a predatory an interesting predatory, I don't know, like a way to hide what you're doing when if Les Moonves was supposedly this big advocate for Me Too, it's almost a way of hiding behind that when you're you're a creep, it really. Oh, for sure. It does not surprise me at all that he was, you know, this vocal proponent of Me Too and was propping up commissions to investigate sexual harassment in the workplace while actively sexually harassing women in the workplace. That's not surprising to me at all. Just look at the former attorney general of New York, who was a very vocal Me Too proponent while also being terrible to women. You know, it doesn't surprise me at all that he would be someone who is very vocally supportive of this movement while also being a creep himself. That doesn't surprise me. And it it is a tactic that I think abusers would use to sort of throw folks off the trail and to sort of make them seem like they are one of the good guys when they're not. Well, on a lesser on a lesser scale, it kind of reminds me of when 
say you're at a bar and a guy approaches you and somehow it comes up and he, he says, oh, I'm very, very feminist. But it's almost more of a way to, like, oh, she'll like this. <laughs> she, like, you're not really feminist. You just want a girl to come home with you. Yeah, I have this theory that men that use feminism to hit on women, what they actually mean is, oh, I like women with short hair. Or like, oh, I'm, you know, it's like, I don't think they mean what they think it means. Sure. <laughs> That's a good theory. Um, there is one thing that we wanted to talk about that is sort of different about Les Boonvez's case and his behavior. And it's that um, gender-based harassment is not always sexual. That's exactly right. So these women allege sexual harassment, groping, kissing, and meetings, that sort of thing. But when this story came out, another wrinkle of it is the fact that he had been derailing the careers of women that it sounds like he just didn't like. You know, they were mouthy feminists, they didn't kiss his ass, and that he was such a powerful figure that he systematically derailed the careers of these women that might have otherwise gone on to flourish, and that this was a big part of how he treated women during his tenure at CBS. And I feel like this is something that can really get lost in the Me Too mix, that harassment doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to be groping or kissing and things like that. Sometimes it's powerful gatekeeping men sabotaging and derailing careers based on gender. And that's exactly what happened with two women, Janet Jackson and Linda Bloodworth Thomason. So first of all, if you haven't read Designing Women showrunner Linda Bloodworth Thomason, her piece in The Hollywood Reporter called Not All Harassment is Sexual, you need to. It's, it should be like a requirement for this episode. Oh my God, yes. Like, pause the episode and go <laughs> read it. It's one of those pieces where it might, you know the, that, that, um, that sound effect that's in reggaeton music, the air horn? Oh yeah, the hip-hop horns. <laughs> yeah, I was, my feminist air horns were blaring after every paragraph. Every paragraph I read, in the, in the back of my mind, I was hearing, because <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, and it's, it's so good that it was a struggle not to include the entire essay in this podcast. Yeah, the episode could have just been us dramatically reading this podcast with air horn sound effects, and I would have been happy with the podcast that we produced. Maybe that could be a bonus episode, because that sounds kind yes. of fun. <laughs> like, add a reggaeton beat? Yes, yes, I would love it'll, it. It'll be, the, it'll, be the hot, it'll be the hottest song in the club for like eight People who go to That's the club right. to hear feminist essays read over music. Two of us included. Well, Beyonce did it. <laughs> kind That's of. That's true. Oh, my God. A remix of, of a Beyonce song with, instead of We Should All Be Feminists, this essay. I am here for it. Just listen to this opening line. This is not going to be the article you might be expecting about Les Moonves. It's not going to be wise or inspiring. It's going to be petty and punishing. In spite of my proper Southern mother's admonition to always be gracious, I am all out of grace when it comes to Mr. Moonves. In fact, like a lot of women in Hollywood, I am happy to dance on his professional grave. And not just any dance. This will be the Macarena, the Rumba, the Cha-Cha, the Moonwalk. You get the idea. I do get the idea. It's so good. Also, can I say, because she is the former showrunner of Designing Women, I don't know if y'all ever watched Designing Women. This reads like a Julia Sugarbaker monologue. So if you watch that show, you know the women were prone to, you know, feisty feminist rants. It, I, in my mind, Julia Sugarbaker is reading this, and it ends with, 
and you will never alter drapes in Atlanta again. If you watch Designing Women, you get that reference. You don't, you're confused, but trust me, it's great. <laughs> and all the while, there's the, there's the hip-hop horns going on. This is a whole thing we're creating. Yeah, we need to find Dixie Carter, the woman who played Julia Sugarbaker, Delta Burke, Beyonce, get them together, get a producer on it, and, ma- and make this track. I'm telling you, it will be a banger. I think they're going to be... We're not going to have any trouble getting them on board at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> if you're wondering... If you're not sure um, what's going on here, what Linda Bloodworth Thomason is talking about, she's writing about um, how Moonvest systematically boxed her and other women-led shows out of CBS. She writes, I was never sexually harassed or attacked by Les Moonves. My encounters were much more subtle, engendering a different kind of destruction. In 1992, I was given the largest writing and producing contract in the history of CBS. It was for $50 million, involving... Five new series with hefty penalties for each pilot not picked up. So after Moonves became president of CBS Entertainment in 1995, the network didn't pick up any of her pilots. She writes, Often, if he would catch me in the parking lot, he would make sure to tell me that my script was one of the best he had ever read, but that he decided in the end not to do it. It always seemed like he enjoyed telling me this. Oh, that's such a sleazy move to go up to her and say, Oh, you almost had it, honey, but I changed, I decided to go in another direction. I can sort of see how that was meant to keep her hanging on and hoping and fighting and wondering, is it, I mean, that's almost like a, um, it's almost like gaslighting. Like, yeah. that probably made her wonder, you know, is it me? Like, what am I doing? But if that was his tactic, that's like a way to keep her always, always holding out hope that, you know, this time is going to be it. Yeah, something on a much smaller scale but similar happened to me once where I um, I had gotten a pretty decent, for me, role in a pretty big movie. And the night I got there to shoot it, they had me like waiting and watching somebody rehearse it over and over again. And it was a really cold night and it was late and hours passed and I'm kind of wondering what's happening. And um, eventually the assistant director came up to me and he said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I really think uh, we should give this to uh, the male stunt guy. And then he said something like, um, isn't, it, isn't it difficult to work in an industry that's all about your looks? And then they, like, made me watch them film it. It was awful. <laughs> what an asshole. I know. What an asshole. Like, that's what I'm saying. I think that even... So that, so that sounds like it was very clearly gender-based, and it was about making you internalize that you were not good enough in some way. And I guess that's my point is that, you know, this is, this is gender-based harassment. It may not be sexual, but it is so toxic and pervasive and it can really get in your head. And this, like, we should be interested in fostering workplaces where employees and people who are on projects feel safe and secure and that they don't feel like at any minute there's going to be, you know, a a mine for them to walk on that, you know, we should be promoting workplaces that feel safe and that people feel supported. And when you, when you're in a workplace where it sounds like this, this movie set was where you're constantly being reminded that there's someone else who could do your job and making you watch this happen, you know, that's, that does not set up a workplace where you feel safe. And it's even harder when you're a woman because you're already marginalized. So you're already feel like you have a target on your back and then having to endure this, you know, it just, 
it's just not good. I mean, it's not sexual harassment, but it's so, so toxic. And it can really just mess you up. I mean, that if, if I had gone through what you just described, I would have been mortified. I would have been, it would have, it would have knocked my confidence for so long. And again, who knows what the impact that has on your career long-term. Right. And I, I just remember being in such shock and I was so cold and I had to like walk back to the room with all the other actors and crew and they asked me, what happened? Why aren't you doing it? And I couldn't, I almost couldn't find the words. I just went home and cried and it was such a miserable because that was a big deal for me that that role was a big deal and then the night of for them to say no I'll just give it to this guy who's never rehearsed I had to go through like all of these rehearsals and anyway um and it, it's I won't be late for the point but it's it's such a it's so disrespectful it's disrespectful of you as a professional it's disrespectful of your time and the value that you put into your craft you had been rehearsing. You, you, you were physically there when this decision was made. I mean, it's, it's just so disrespectful. It's just so, and it just cultivates this climate of gender-based disrespect that I think is, I think as women, it, this, that probably sounds familiar to a lot of women listening, right? This idea that someone would make this seemingly flippant choice and it would just be this upholding of gross, disrespectful, toxic bullshit that we find in workplaces as women, and I hate it. It, make, it makes my skin crawl. It makes my skin crawl as well. And um, it sounds like before Moonves took over at CBS, the network was a, a better place to work, or at least it had launched a number of groundbreaking feminist TV shows, including The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Maud and Murphy Brown. But Bloodworth Thomason points out that Moonves ushered in the CSI era, which is basically shows about women being victimized by men. Though I have to say, I do love me some uh, Law and Order, which is on NBC. Uh, so a little bit of a problematic faith there. I agree, I agree with her assessment, but I have to say, like, I I I don't want anyone calling me out on Twitter when that when I'm tweeting about how much I love Law and Order because it is my guilty pleasure. She says that she doesn't know what happened to all the women-led shows at CBS, but she writes, I just know that the likes of them have rarely been seen on that network again, thanks to Les Moonves. I can only guess they all became vaginal swabs in crime labs on CSI Amarillo, <laughs> which is, again, a, a pretty good line. That's, that's epic, yeah. To make matters worse, when she left CBS, Bloodworth Thomason said Moonves agreed to pay only a fraction of the penalties due for failing to pick up her pilots. When her agent asked the executive what he should tell his client, she said Moonves replied, tell her to go f*** herself. Ugh. And I think it sort of needs to be said that part of me wonders, you know, maybe this is just the industry. This is just Hollywood. This is just how it works. It's all... It's all games and it's all mind games and it's all business and it's all wheeling and dealing. But this is not okay. The way that she is alleging that he treated her is not okay. And I think that as long as we use platitudes like that, like, oh, it's just business, it's just Hollywood, we're making it okay to treat people, oftentimes women and people of color and people who are marginalized in these fields, we're making it okay to treat them like garbage. And we're saying it's okay to, ha to cultivate an industry that, you know, it doesn't matter how you treat people. It doesn't matter, you know, if you were contractually obligated to pay X and you're just not going to pay it because you're a big deal and you can do that and you're the head of this network and blah, blah, blah. 
We are cultivating atmospheres where that's okay. And we should be better than that, you know? I, I think, that, I mean, I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying like, oh, well, that's just, the, that's just Hollywood. It's just business. I don't think that's a good excuse for what's happening here. And like we mentioned earlier, those those fines for not picking up the pilots were hefty. Those were big, a lot of money there. And if you can only imagine if Les Moonves is one of the reasons that her pilots didn't get picked up, and then she's having to pay the fine for it, that's ridiculous. And a huge, that's a huge deal for your career. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, Think about where she would be now if this hadn't happened. Like, she, she flat out says that he derailed her career and that people, you know, one of the lines in her, her essay that we're going to get to is she says, people always ask what happened to you. And she says, Les Moonves happened to me. Think about where she would be right now. She could have a, a room full of Emmys if this one guy hadn't decided to throw a wrench in, her in, in the entire trajectory of her career, which up until that point had been very successful. And... She says that she wasn't harassed by Moonves in a sexual way, but she did hear word of his inappropriate behavior. Um, Quote, I began to hear from female CBS employees about his mercurial misogynist behavior with actresses being ushered in and out of his office. His mantra, I was told, was, why would I want to cast him if I don't want to f*** him? And he was an angry bully who enjoyed telling people, I will tear off the top of your head and piss on your brain. That's just disturbing. That is a boss you do not want. Yeah, can you imagine if your boss said that to you or like that you had heard that that was something that he that he um said to other said? people? Yeah. I I would think that this is going to turn into I I've seen too many horror movies, but I would think it was going to be a horror movie and I don't need this guy anywhere near me. Yeah, it just sounds like he's someone who who had a knack for saying really gross things. In 2011, he said, quote, When I first got to CBS, the sexiest woman on the network was Angela Lansbury. But fortunately, we're doing a little better than that now. Gross. Oh, what a jerk. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) And another quote from Thomason's essay is also particularly horrible. She writes, Soon I would hear how he had invited a famous actress to lunch in the CBS dining room. Coming off the cancellation of her iconic detective show, the star began pitching a new one. He informed her that she was too old to be on his network. She began to cry and stood up to go. He stood up too, taking her by the shoulders and telling her, I can't let you leave like this. She reacted, suddenly touched. Then he shoved his tongue down her throat. I know this happened because the star is the person who told me. That just, when I read that, I was enraged. And I did, I did have a moment where I began trying to deduce who that might have been. But it, <laughs> ultimately, it doesn't matter because right. it doesn't, like, that is such a, just a terrible, terrible, terrible way to treat anyone, but especially someone who is your employee. Like, that, like, that is just, I mean, can you imagine, if, if that had been you, can you imagine the roller coaster ride that your emotions would have been on? Uh, yeah, that would have been, it would have been miserable. Um, <laughs> again, I have a story that's kind of similar, but not as bad, where I, I like had a role, and it was a really good role, but then the producer, he asked me out, and I said no, and he was like, well, I guess, you know, now it's awkward, and we can't work together, and I was like, okay, and, he's, and then like we're, we were going to leave, 
and he said, you know, I, I think you do great work and I would love to, to work with you again, maybe just not now. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he tried to kiss me. <laughs> oh. like, no, okay, we're never working together. Good, all right. Now I know. But that, is, again, why should you lose an economic opportunity and a professional opportunity because of his penis? Why? Why? I, I don't think I should. I don't think yeah. I should. But alas, I don't make the rules. I'm trying to change the rules, but I don't make the rules. Oh, my God. This is, oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm so angry. <laughs> yeah, we're not worried, like, not even to the first ad break. Thomason basically says that Les Moonves blackballed and derailed her career and the careers of other women all because he didn't like those mouthy feminists on TV. Quote, over the years, even when an actress managed to get one of my scripts through an agent, the deal would immediately be killed. It was like a personal vendetta, and I will never know why. Was it because I was championing the New South or an admittedly aggressive feminist agenda or both? When the legendary Bette Midler informed Moonbez that she wanted to do a series with me, I'm told he denied her request. When the singer Huey Lewis, whom Les had become enamored with, chose me to write a pilot for him, his contract was canceled. It would have been so easy not to mention honorable, to simply tell me he was never going to put a show of mine on air. That was certainly his right. But instead, he kept me hopping and hoping. When I finally realized he was never going to put a show of mine on the air, I left. It was never really about the money anyway. I just wanted to work. People asked me for years, where have you been? What happened to you? Les Moonves happened to me. Mm. And I guess that's what it all comes down to for me, is that, you know, where would her career be? If he had just said, listen, you're not my cup of tea. The shows that you put on are not for me. It's not going to, I don't see it for you with this network. I'm sorry. She's, it sounds like she would have just packed up and left. She would have found someplace else to work. But he never did that. He just kept her hoping and clawing and working and probably internalizing, you know, is this me? Like, what am I doing wrong? I thought I was good at this. That probably went on for years and years until she wised up and realized it's not me. It's him. This is his thing. And yeah, if she, like, just think of all the time that she wasted. We didn't include it in the episode today, but she describes this sort of charm campaign that she waged. You know, she talks about how she was voted most popular in high school and that she figured certainly she could figure out a way to charm, charm this guy. And so she would be really nice and really, she really tried to work with him and nothing that she did was going to convince him to put a show of hers on the air. And just keeping her hanging on for so long when she could have been out flourishing at another network, out developing new things, out working, I just think is so messed up. And it really, it just, it makes me sad. It makes me sad that we as women, particularly women who are creatives, have to put up with this, that this is something that we have to put up with in the industry. And I don't think it's fair. It's cruel. And, um... It's sadistic. It's it's almost yeah. yeah, it's almost it's almost like a a sadistic head game. Like she says, why didn't he just tell me it wasn't gonna work out for me at this network? Because that's not a head game. That's not that's not a power trip. A power trip is keeping somebody trying to impress you, keeping someone hoping and clawing and working for a long time. That's a power trip. Just honorably saying it's not gonna work out, just so you know, that's not a power trip. And it's about power. Absolutely. 
And Thomason isn't alone. The reporting on Les Moonves's ouster at CBS also unveiled a new wrinkle that he waged a campaign against Janet Jackson following the infamous Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction, which we'll get into after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So I should just say, right off the bat, before we get into talking about Janet Jackson, I am a Janet Jackson super fan. So (laughs) full disclosure, you might be thinking, wow, I just want everyone to know that we're all on the same page. I am a huge Janet Jackson fan. That might color how I feel about a little bit of what what went down (laughs) in this situation. I just want folks to know just straight up. Yeah, might might color things a bit. Uh, but you're being an upfront and professional podcaster. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. So according to a piece in the Huffington Post by Yashar Ali, Moonves had a personal vendetta against Janet Jackson and vowed to destroy her career after her breast was exposed for nine sixteenths of a second during the Super Bowl halftime show with Justin Timberlake in 2004. Do you remember that? Um, I do remember that. I, I didn't watch it, but I remember people talking about it afterwards. Yeah, I remember watching it live because I loved Janet Jackson and always have and always will because she's a queen. So, of course, I watched <laughs> that performance. Um, and then afterward, we went, we went on her, um, my whole family like went to her concert when she came to play uh, in Hampton Roads in Virginia when I was growing up. But in case you've forgotten, people were outraged by this nipple. America Online, who sponsored the halftime show, demanded a refund of the $9.3 million it had paid to do so. Several private citizens even filed their own lawsuits against the broadcaster at the horror of seeing a nipple for, you know, that amount of time. Heaven forbid we see, we be exposed to a nipple. I mean, my God, can you imagine? <laughs> I'm scarred for life. I'll never yeah. recover. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You might need therapy for that. One Tennessee woman even filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of, quote, all American citizens who watched the outrageous conduct. Oh, whoa. I mean, there's outrageous conduct at the Super Bowl, but I would say it's not that. (laughs) CBS and MTV, a subsidiary of Viacom, the parent company of CBS at the time, which produced the halftime show, faced a torrent of criticism and a $550,000 FCC fine. Now, to be clear... Both Jackson and Timberlake say that this was a legit accident. You might remember the phrase wardrobe malfunction being used to describe what happened. During their routine, Timberlake was meant to tear away the leather exposing a red lace bra underneath a leather bustier, but instead he accidentally ripped away everything exposing her breast. But Moonvez didn't buy this and thought it was an intentional ploy to stir controversy. He banned both Timberlake and Jackson from the 2004 Grammys. Timberlake issued a tearful apology to Moonves and was unbanned and invited to perform. Ali writes that the CBS chief executive was furious that Jackson didn't make a similarly contrite apology to him. The fallout from the incident inflicted significant damage on Jackson's career, which until that point had produced 10 number one hits and still reverberates to this day. This really kills me because I think that the popular narrative around this whole situation is that after the Super Bowl, Janet Jackson was so ashamed and disgraced by what happened that she retreated from the public limelight and that, you know, that's, you know, she sort of went into hiding or something. That is not true. 
she continued to make albums. She continued to make music. She continued to be her super talented, amazing self and put out hit after hit after hit, or I guess they weren't hits, but they were hits in my heart. They were great. (laughs) Um, But her career was intentionally sidelined by Les Moonves. So people, I think that the popular narrative is that she retreated from the limelight and she didn't. Her career was, she was just being blackballed by this one ass. And one weird side note, Moonves's wife, Julie Chen, who just stepped down from her role on the talk following Les Moonves's ouster, said Janet never apologized for the incident. She says that both parties would have been fine had they both apologized and that Justin apologized and that she didn't. Here's what she had to say. Their camps were both told, all you have to do is come out and apologize for what happened and you'll be on the Grammys. The following week, one person apologized, one person didn't. And that following week, Justin Timberlake, who apologized, performed at the Grammys and Janet Jackson did not. But... Janet Jackson actually did apologize. She went on TV and apologized. So here's a listen. And unfortunately, the whole thing went wrong in the end. I am really sorry if I offended anyone. That was truly not my intention. Yeah, it does sort of sound like that Julie Chen was sticking up for her husband and CBS and sort of rewriting history and saying that Jackson never apologized when, you know, she absolutely verifiably did. It does sound that way. And Ali says that Moonves ordered Viacom Properties VH1 and MTV and all Viacom-owned radio stations stop playing Jackson's songs and music videos. And the move had a huge impact on sales of her album, Demita Joe, which was released in March 2004, just a month after the Super Bowl. Which, by the way, after putting together the uh, notes for this episode, I listened to that album, and it slaps. a good album. And it tanked because of Les Moonves. (laughs) Bridget, Bridget, you've got to calm down. (laughs) I know. Janet Jackson, I mean, I will, I will, there are a few people that I will, like, defend to the death, and Janet Jackson is one of them. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, side note, I used to always tell my friends, if anything ever happens to me, like, if I get killed or something like that, in lieu of a funeral, please pass a local ordinance that says that all dance clubs in D.C. at midnight on my birthday have to play Janet Jackson's Together Again, and you can dance as wild as you want, and nobody can ever get thrown out. It'll be like um, The The, Purge, but for Janet Jackson. (laughs) You can just do whatever you want. There are no rules. (laughs) Dancing-wise. Dancing-wise. I mean, you can't kill a guy, but you could you know, stand on a table and dance if, that, if that's how you feel your body needs to express itself. I love this, Bridget. I am on board. Yeah, if anything ever happens to me, avenge my death in that way, please. I am on it. I am on it. SB Nation reports that Demita Joe's low sales were in part because she was blacklisted by Clear Channel Communications, which at the time was owned by Viacom, MTV, and CBS Radio, as well as subsequent radio stations. That made it virtually impossible for Jackson to promote her album, singles, and music videos. And that is a huge deal. She basically was not able to promote this album at all. And I actually remember one of the reasons why we were able to go. Like the whole, My whole family went to her concert for this album. And one of the reasons why we were able to go is because the tickets were really cheap. Like I remember it was a rare family thing where the entire family and like my cousins and stuff all went. And I think we were only able to do that because the tickets were kind of cheap. Um, now, I have to say, many, 
myself very much included, felt that Janet's career was being stalled because of the incident, while Justin was basically allowed to flourish. Timberlake, I think, seemed to kind of throw her under the bus in, in subsequent interviews after this happened. He said, I looked at her. They brought a towel up on stage. They covered her up. I was completely embarrassed and just walked off stage as quickly as I could. He also said, I'm frustrated at the whole situation. I'm frustrated that my character is being questioned. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I've had a good year, a really good year, especially with my music. So I can't help but notice that his talking about her, you know, oh, they brought a towel on stage to cover her up. That just seems so dripping in shame that she should be ashamed, you know, cover her up. I was so embarrassed. It, It really sort of distances his role in the whole thing and kind of, at least in my book, seems to put the entire thing on her in a way that I just found, find really, you know, shaming. Yeah, there, there were two people involved in that situation. Timberlake, sir. <laughs> he did say two years later in 2006, in my honest opinion now, I could have handled it better. I'm part of a community that consider themselves artists, and there was something I could have done in her defense that was more than I realized then I would have. But the other half of me was like, wow, we still haven't found the weapons of mass destruction and everybody cares about this. I probably got 10% of the blame, and that says something about society. I think that America's harsher on women, and I think that America is, you know, unfairly harsh on ethnic people. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it is sort of like Justin Timberlake discovers racism. You know, it's like a, it's, 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 I shouldn't laugh because, you know, it, it, Better late than ever, but it is sort of funny. He also says that he has, quote, made peace with Janet, which, fine. But in my, obviously, very biased book, since he didn't use his recent Super Bowl performance to, like, bring Janet Jackson out, give her a heartfelt and public and meaningful apology, and then sit quietly while she performed, you know, five deep cut songs from her (laughs) back catalog, I I will always be sus of Timberlake, just in my personal opinion. I know people like him. People are not going to like that I've said that. But I don't know. This happens so publicly, whether or not he's privately made peace with her, whatever that means, until he publicly says, I'm sorry for what happened to you. I will always kind of be anti-Timberlake a little bit. That, what you just described, is a Super Bowl midtime halftime show. I never watched the Super Bowl that I would tune in for. <laughs> right? Same. We're just coming up with all kinds of good content ideas in this episode. We are. Ali alleges now that Janet's career setbacks were an intentional thing that Moonves engineered. Ali writes, seven years after the 2004 incident, Moonves told several sources he was furious when he found out Jackson had signed a book deal with Simon & Schuster for her book, True You, A Journey to Finding and Loving Yourself. Simon & Schuster is owned by the CBS Corporation. Quote, How the f*** did she slip through? Moonves asked while recounting the story to a source who spoke to me. He told another source that heads were going to roll as a result of the deal. Yeah, so you can kind of see how, you know, this wasn't just something where she was so ashamed by her boo being out for, you know, a hot second that she retreated from public light, that this actually was an intentional stalling of her career by Les Moonves. I mean, according to reporting, he bragged about it, and it was a thing that, he, that people knew that that was, his, that was his vendetta, and that he 
held this vendetta for years. I mean, the book that you just mentioned, that came out in 2011. That's years later. Years later, he's still talking about Shannon Jackson. Guy knows how to hold a grudge. Seriously. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have a little bit more for you, but first, we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, in conclusion, this whole thing is a great case study for the fact that gender-based harassment is not always sexual. Linda Bloodworth Thomason alleges that Les Moonves just didn't like the, quote, loud-mouthed speeches women made on Designing Women. He also tried to stomp out Janet Jackson's career because she wasn't apologetic enough following her wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, exactly. Gender-based harassment can look like a lot of things. Sometimes it is sexual harassment, but sometimes it's a man sort of trying to blackball your career because you're the kind of woman he doesn't like. Sometimes it's being mistreated systematically in a workplace. It doesn't always have to be groping and kissing for it to be wrong and for it to have a real negative impact on your career. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it's something that happens all too often. So if this is something that's happened to you, listeners, please write in, let us know. And this brings us to listener mail. Sarah wrote, I live in former Swaziland, a small country in southern Africa. Here, people are addressed by familial relationships, whether you're related or not, rather than marital status. I'll save you the trouble of pronouncing the Siswati words, but it's a fairly simple formula. A man your age or younger is brother, a man older than you is father, a much older man is grandfather, and the same applies for women with sister, mother, and grandmother. You will typically be upgraded a problematic word choice, I know, from sister or brother to mother or father upon getting married and or having children, whichever comes first. But both men and women switch over after marriage rather than only the women. Also, you can still be mother or father even if you've never been married or have no children. It's just a culturally respectful title based on your relative age to whomever is addressing you. Well, this is fascinating. We This was in response to our recent classic episode of Miss, Mrs., all of that confusion (laughs) and um, uh, how it's different in other countries. So, Sarah, thank you so much for sending us this. This is, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I like that you can be mother or father even if you don't have kids. That sort of reminds me of how basically every adult that is close to my parents is my aunt or uncle, even though they are not technically my aunt or uncle. Yeah, (laughs) I have so many relatives like that. I know that's not what you are. But that's what I'm calling you. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Victoria wrote, I am getting married at the end of September and have really pondered if I should take my future husband's name. We are not traditional. My fiancé did not ask my dad for my hand, nor am I having my father walk me down the aisle as I am deciding to marry. No one is giving me away. My dad just gets to sit back and relax on a big day. I have decided to take my husband's name. One, I come from a large family and my name is at no risk of dying out. Two, My last name is very generic. You could probably guess it in two or three tries, and I don't feel a strong connection to it. My husband's family is much smaller, and I absolutely love his family, especially his paternal grandmother. She has such a strong connection to her history and has passed down such a rich oral history of their family to me. So the idea of taking their name isn't something that threatens my feminist nature at all. Secondly, on the Travel Alone episode, 
I enjoy traveling alone and my fiance has encouraged this. He thinks it demonstrates strength and it also gives us unshared experiences that we can talk about even when we've been together for a long time. Wow, that is a, uh, an aspect of traveling alone that I hadn't even considered, that if you're in a romantic relationship, having intentionally solo experiences can sort of keep your relationship interesting and give you something to talk about and give you something to bond with your partner over, even though you didn't share those experiences. That's a really interesting kind of sweet thing. I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, yeah, that, um, I love that because it's true if you've been in a relationship for a long time and I mean, I've only, the longest relationship I was in was for three years, but I was glad that when we did things separately, it was kind of a chance to recharge and then have things to talk about because we've covered a lot of the stuff already in those three years. And I can only imagine that as a longer relationship would have compounded that. And I also love, a lot of you have written in about this last name changing thing, Um, having a generic last name and feeling like, no, <laughs> no connection to it, really, which I, I thought was an interesting aspect to this whole conversation. Totally. Thank you for writing in, both of you. And yes. if folks want to write in themselves, where can they do that? They can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, we're available on social media, on Instagram at Stuff I'm Never Told You, and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And thank you to our producer, Andrew Howard, and thanks to you for listening. Thank you.